You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined by Congressman Ami Berra in his fourth term representing the 7th District of California, Sacramento County. Congressman Berra is a physician, an MD, trained at UCAL Irvine. He had a 20-year career as a practicing physician and a hospital manager and administrator. He also served as the chief medical officer, Sacramento County, and as a clinical professor of medicine at UCAL Davis before coming to Congress very unusual background. In Congress, he has been highly active on health security matters. He joined our CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security two years ago and is sticking with us. And Ami, thank you so much for all the contributions that you've made over this past two years to that commission. Thanks for having me on. It was obviously a very timely commission. I want to mention also that you've become the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, the subcommittee on Asia, Pacific and Nonproliferation, uh, which is very relevant to m- some of what we're going to be talking about today. I just also want to mention my first arrival in Washington was to join the House Foreign Affairs Africa Subcommittee back um, in the late 80s. So I'm very familiar with this and, and very fond of those subcommittees. We have uh, a lot of ground to cover here. I thought we'd start with one very broad question, which is for Americans to watch the response unfold here. We're now at a million cases and 54,000 deaths, 27,000 unemployed. This has been a pretty shocking and difficult and disturbing phenomenon to witness. And it says something about our lack of preparedness. It says something about what we missed in the lead up to this. Of course, we don't experience 100-year pandemics very frequently. Can you tell us, as you look back on this most recent period, how were we so profoundly caught off guard to such a degree that now the United States is the epicenter? You know, as someone who's worked on pandemic preparedness and global health security, it's always been a tough issue to get Congress um, interested in to allocate the resources. And I think some of that complacency is that we've been lucky. I mean, we we had SARS um, back in the last decade. You know, we had H1N1 in 2009, you know, which infected a lot of uh, Americans, but was not particularly deadly in, in this way. We had MERS and the Ebola outbreak caught a lot of people's a, a, attention. But again, Ebola is not like this particular novel coronavirus that it doesn't spread easily. So I think there was a sense of complacency. I also think when we saw the early warning signs in in China, and some of us were trying to sound the alarm bells to say, hey, this is coming here. But I think there was still a complacency early on in the administration thinking that, you know, we could do this containment strategy and the and the travel ban. You know, I had the, the first hearing in Congress um that first week of February. And in that hearing, you know, we really talked about how the travel ban was going to buy us time, but it wasn't going to prevent the virus from coming to the United States. And we really had to take advantage of that time to ramp up testing capabilities, et cetera. So, you know, I I just think there was this complacency and we didn't do the necessary steps to get ready. 
And the second issue that, you know, we all have faith in the, the CDC. You know, it's a premier public health organization in the world. And early on when the CDC said, okay, we've got a test ready, we're sending it to all 50 states and territories, um, we just assumed that this was a test that was going to work extremely well and be accurate and sensitive and, you know, that the CDC was on its game. Unfortunately, that first test did not work very well. And then I guess the, the last piece that none of us fully understood was the over-reliance of the supply chain on a single source, in this case, China, which effectively shut down. So the whole supply chain was disrupted. That affected testing, that affected um, you know, therapeutics and protective equipment, et cetera. So it was this perfect storm that left us unguarded. As you think about the future and, and the kind of deep structural changes that may be needed in the way we go about protecting Americans, protecting their health security, I know these it's still early days, but what would you, you've been very busy pushing on contact tracing, on expanded testing, on figuring out how to pay for things. What do you think the structural changes are going to be in our, in our approach to health? You know, I think there is um, a much greater focus now on the importance of public health and what public health does. You know, we hear people talk about contact tracing when nobody ever talked about that. I think there's an opportunity for us to build the public health infrastructure that the United States of America certainly deserves. But I think there's also recognition that this is an interconnected planet and we need to um, take a global health security agenda and advance that. And hopefully the silver lining is we create a more collaborative global health framework that allows countries to, to work together, that allows us to have an early warning system, more transparency and in sharing information. Immediate next steps that are going to be necessary are we're all working as fast as we can to uh, find a vaccine. That's not a United States effort. That's a global effort. So can we do that in a transparent way? It's not a given that the United States will find that vaccine first. Let's say China finds that vaccine. Will they share that information with us freely? And then when you're talking about potentially 6 billion doses of vaccine, how are we going to do that in a fair and equitable way? The vials that you have to put together, um, you know, the syringes, all the supplies, and then the global health workforce to disseminate that vaccine, that is going to require all of us working together because this is a global pandemic. Congressman, this is Andrew. Are you worried about the Chinese finding it first and then not sharing it? I think it's something that we should discuss right now and create the framework and some sort of international treaty that says whoever comes up with the vaccine first is going to share that intellectual property freely. I'm more worried about the supply chain issues because, again, the glass vials that are going to house that vaccine, a lot of that stuff comes from China. The syringes that you're going to have to um, ramp up and manufacture, those come from China. So what does that look like? And then I am worried, you know, the, the first hundred um, million doses of, of vaccine, who's going to get those first? Are we going to like if I were doing this in an equitable way, I'd say we should take the healthcare workers first around the world and make sure they're vaccinated. Then we should go look at the vulnerable populations around the world, make sure they're vaccinated, and then look at the hotspots around the world. Now, that's Pollyannish of me, but the you know the reality is, let's say the United States comes up with the first hundred million doses. How does an American president say, well, you know, I'm going to send thirty million? Um, 
doses to Africa because that's where it's needed most. Americans probably revolt just as Chinese would probably revolt. So we've got to figure this out right now and come up with a framework and an international way of distributing this vaccine. Is this something that you're working on with your colleagues in Congress right now? It is. It is. It's, it's something that we've started to raise issues with um, on the Foreign Affairs Committee. We are working with the full committee to say these are issues we ought to raise either with the Secretary of State or, or others so we start those conversations right now before anyone has the vaccine. Now, is it possible to have bipartisan work done on this? Because so much of this has been politicized, particularly when it comes to China. You know, it it is, but it, it's not going to be easy. You know, this week we're going to have a briefing looking at the supply chain issues vis a vis China. I do worry about you know the domestic politics here in the United States seeping into international relations, and you can see some of the where the the president's politics are going in terms of um, placing blame on China. And and I'm not suggesting China doesn't have some blame here. I mean, they could have been much more transparent and and cooperative early on in this virus. So I'm not letting China off the hook, but we're going to have to work with China. May I just add to that, Congressman, um, we're aware that starting on April 14th, President Trump has singled out the World Health Organization and criticized it for being China-centric and accusing WHO of being an agent of the Chinese in, in misinformation campaigns and is now has suspended support running 500 million a year, 20% of its budget. It's beginning to explore reappropriating funds and the like. This is a dangerous uh, development. This is one that as the pandemic moves into low-income countries and countries with large, vulnerable populations in, in dense settings where WHO is the central player. I mean, we had a session this morning with the UN coordinator in Yemen, Lise Grande, around what is going on there. And WHO is absolutely front and center in trying to direct the response to COVID-19. What can Congress do on a bipartisan basis to push back and press the Trump administration to come to its senses on WHO? I mean, we can continue to sound the alarm. The WHO is not a perfect organization by any means. Um, it's susceptible to global politics, but it is the best organization that we have right now. And at this particular time, in the midst of a global pandemic, is absolutely the worst time for the United States to withdraw support and funding. So we can continue to work around the president in a sense with the administration to start putting funding back in and you know hopefully keep the politics out of this but you know this is a president who doesn't really listen to our advice so we can't tell the president what to do but hopefully there are folks within the administration that understand the importance of continuing this funding because again coronavirus COVID-19 is not a United States issue if we don't address the virus overseas in vulnerable places, it is going to make it that much harder for us to get it under control here at home. But Congressman, how do you deal with a global problem with a administration that is positioning itself as looking inward? It's tough. So it then forces members like me to work directly with international organizations, directly with the NGOs that are doing some of this work. The challenge is we can appropriate billions of dollars 
it's up to the administration to make sure those dollars get to the organizations that are doing the work. And that's the way our system has always worked. Historically, we've had presidents that you know may or may not have liked how we appropriated the, the resources, but they understood that their job was then to take those resources that we gave them and use them. This administration hasn't followed that playbook. And again, short of Congress earmarking dollars that specifically go places, um, you know, I just don't see this administration changing. Congressman, you're a physician. Your wife is a physician. You have practiced medicine. Why do you think there's so much confusion within the White House, within the governors, about whether social distancing should or could last for months? I think that then plays into some of our um, partisan politics here domestically, because you're largely seeing not all red state governors, but many red state governors, you know, kind of parroting the, the president on this, who is not taking this virus as seriously as I think you see some of the blue state governors like Governor Cuomo, Governor Newsom and others. And that's a dangerous precedent. And you know, I don't want to see this um this experiment take place in real time because we're talking about people's lives and, and, and livelihoods. So I, I do think some of it is we've segregated as, as a nation. You know, the blue states are bluer, the red states are redder, and some of those are different political philosophies. That said, you know, the virus doesn't respect state borders. So, you know, we ought to be doing this um, in a national way and in, in, in the national interest. Well, your your district is pretty purple, as I recall. Tell us what it's like in your district as you talk to your constituents and they're weighing this tension between social distancing, sheltering in place to be safe and confident, the need for testing and contact tracing and isolation measures, but also the desire to get the economy open again and people back to work and and balancing all of that off. What are you hearing as you engage at home in your district with your constituents? You know, I think Sacramento County and the state of California, for the most part, fell into compliance fairly quickly. I think we've seen strong leadership out of Governor Newsom, out of our local public health officials. And we did early stay-at-home orders, and the, the vast majority of folks have been compliant. Most people are putting public health and safety first, with the recognition that we do want to get the economy going again. I think here locally, though, and if you look at um, objective polling that the California Healthcare Foundation has done, folks are still very willing to stay at home if that means keeping our community safe and, and saving people's lives. We've flattened the curve. Our hospital admissions are, are down. ER visit rates are, are down. So this week we will start doing elective surgeries and elective procedures. I think that's the right thing to do because there's a healthcare consequence of delaying some of these. And I think this week we will start seeing Governor Newsom and, and you know, where appropriate, relaxing some of the stay-at-home measures and allowing folks to do a little bit more in terms of shopping and, and visiting families with appropriate physical distancing, with face coverings, et cetera. But I think you'll see a slow unwind, not a rapid unwind. Now, California's been very slow to get to catch up on the testing. I know there's been some some recent progress, but it was slow to get to that point. Why was that in California? Well, so I think 
just the diagnostic testing capabilities all across this country were woefully inadequate and, and still are woefully inadequate. You know, California's ramped things up now and it's getting better. But if we want to do a full unwind and, and open the doors, we don't have the testing capabilities necessary to do the contact tracing that, that you need to because we'll still continue to see clusters. So, yeah, I think some of that goes back to that supply chain issue. I think the test kits are out there now. It's just we don't have the reagents to, to process um, the tests. Thank you. You've been very busy and we've talked to your staff who have been very busy trying to keep abreast of all of the different initiatives underway to create brigades of contact tracers and other local capacities. Tell us a bit about that. What's happening in your district on that score? Yeah, so surround yourself with smart people like Colleen and Ryan, and, and they make you look smart. And we really understand that if we are starting to open, you know, then we need to have a public health workforce that is able to do that, that contact tracing. CSIS and, and my fellow commissioner, Susan Brooks, and, and I had an op-ed. Now it seems like more than a couple of weeks ago. But, you know, just talking about creating this COVID-19 response core, something we've talked about with the CDC and others, and, you know, everyone's in agreement that we're going to need this workforce. It's at least 100,000 individuals. It might be more. You know, you could take Peace Corps volunteers that have come home. You could take AmeriCorps and others. Some states like Massachusetts are already um, doing the hiring and, and building their own public health workforce. San Francisco is doing the same. So we've asked the leadership in Congress in this next bill to allocate $5 billion to help build this workforce. And we know we're going to need it. And hopefully this is a workforce that exposes folks to public health. And, you know, coming out of this virus, you know, whether that's a year from now, two years from now, hopefully those folks will stay in, in public health. But Congressman, it seems like we're allowing our coronavirus response to be governed by extremes at the moment. Why isn't there a movement in Congress to really push for a national unity and to lead from a consensus? So I think a, a couple things. While Congress has been sent home and we're following the stay-at-home orders like everyone else, there's a group of us that really have been pushing that Congress has to get back to work. That doesn't mean flying back to Washington, D.C. What that means is we should be having virtual hearings that allow us to do our oversight, that allow the public to actually watch C-SPAN and see what we're deliberating on, talking about issues like the COVID-19 response corps, talking about issues like the, the sensitivity and specificity of serology testing, et cetera. We are having those conversations in the form of briefings. I actually think they ought to be in the form of uh, traditional hearings that folks are under oath and that are publicly available. That would require a rule change. And again, many of us are at a loss for why the leadership hasn't allowed to make those changes. And we're going to continue to push on that. I think that would create more bipartisan cohesion in this. That said, it's pretty amazing that we've now passed four bills that are billions and trillions of dollars in a largely bipartisan way with the vast majority on this last $500 billion bill that we voted on last week. You know, you only had five members, four Republicans and one Democrat vote against that bill, which is in this Congress is pretty amazing. 
That is quite amazing. Can you tell us, just in closing, what during this particularly difficult and dark moment gives you the greatest hope and strength looking ahead? You know, I, I think the silver lining is as we come out of this, we are all in this together. COVID-19 has affected every American and every global citizen, either directly or indirectly. And, you know, it has given us pause. The fact that, you know, we've been um, sequestering for the last five or six weeks. I do think you've seen human kindness come out. You know, the, the fact in, in my own community, people looking after one another, the number of folks that are going out there and volunteering. You know, I think you see the the deep admiration and respect for first responders, for nurses and doctors and folks that are going to work every day. I hope we come out of this with a kinder spirit, one that recognizes that we're in this together, that you know, not just the United States of America, but we're globally connected. And hopefully it does give us the, the opportunity to build institutions that will serve us well in the 21st century. And the biggest mistake we could make is as we come out of this to just rebuild what we had before. I think this gives us an opportunity because this virus has really disrupted the healthcare delivery system, the public health system, our economy. It's exposed the, the disparities in our economy as well. And coming out of this, let's build an economy, let's build a healthcare system, let's build systems that can serve every American and every global citizen well in a humane and kind way. And you know, this is almost, this is the Great Depression. This is post-World War II globe. And it does give us that opportunity to think outside of the box and address issues that we've seen and known were in front of us. But now we hopefully have the political will to do it. Congressman, thank you so much for giving us time today. And thank you for all your leadership and for all the commitments that you've made to CSIS and to the commission over the last two years and looking into the future. We're very grateful. Thank you. And, and thanks for the work that CSIS and others in this space um, do every day. Be safe, be kind, be well. Thank you. Thank you so much, Congressman.